Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. I am Abby Branker. I am sitting here with the one and only Alan Kudan. Hello. And today we are talking about killer cars. Killer cars or evil engines? Evil engines, killer cars, however you want to spin it. Uh, we, we went through a lot of names for this episode. Yeah. It, besides, you know, killer cars and evil engines, we also had murderous machines, mm-hmm. uh, homicidal vehicles. That one doesn't, there's no alliteration there. I know. That's why it, made it, it didn't make it past the cutting room floor, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there was one more. What was it? Mad Motors. Oh, Murderous Motors. Yep. Murderous Motors. Yep. So we're talking today about, well, you should introduce it because this was your topic. Was it? Mm-hmm. Oh. Did you think Killer Cars was on my to-do list? What? So this entire topic came to fruition when I became aware of the movie Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> yes. Which uh, we're going to talk about later in the episode. Yes, we are. But long story short is that it's a truck that kills people. Yes, it is. So I thought, oh, wow, this is a great, you know, like I love doing episodes on like different creature features, you know, and this is just like a different type of monster. Sure. And this it, it being a, a mechanized one. But then I had to take a big step back because mm-hmm. I do not want to delve into the world of killer robots. Oh, I mean, that seems like an endless, infinite number of films. Sure, there's lots. However, I just want to make sure that that has its own dedicated episode. Yeah, or series. So in this, we're talking specifically about evil engines. Evil cars. Vehicles. Because engines can be in other things, right? Malicious vehicles. Yes. Autonomously malicious vehicles. Right. Some of them, exactly, because some of them don't murder, you know, but, but they're, they're on the spectrum of they're bad and they're self-aware. Yes. So this can be a possessed car. This can be just like a demonic truck. Telekinetic tire. It's what well, we, we do. We do. We are going to bend the rules a little bit. Right. That's what I'm saying. No, it's not an engine. Right. That's, but that's kind of its own thing. Sure. But it's, I mean, it's on theme enough. It is. It's, it's. It's part of a car. <laughs> so, okay, without further ado, we're get, we're already starting to talk about the movies. Yes. Let's let's take a big step back here because I assume there's some history involved. There is a bit of history, some real life accounts of killer cars that I was floored to have found. Floored? Mm-hmm. Uh, another car pun? <laughs> uh, I do want to give a content warning at the top of this episode. As you might expect, we are going to talk about a lot of car accidents, both real life car accidents and a lot of car related violence. So just in case that's a trigger for you, we wanted to call that out at the beginning. Today's sources include the novel by Stephen King, Christine, assorted films, all of which we will cite as we go, an article from volocars.com, Wikipedia and IMDb. Starting in the United States, there are reports of quote unquote, the most evil car in America. What? What? What is that? Well, it was a 1969 Dodge 330, which also I'm going to try to, I'm going to name a lot of cars in this episode and I'm not a car person. So hang on. Uh, I'm not a car person at all, but I, I, I like visual references. I feel like you are a car person. You uh, know your way around uh, under the hood. <laughs> yeah, that's me, Mr. Mechanics. I don't know. I feel like you, you know, the parts. I had to like Google a bunch of parts when I was writing one of the stories because I don't know how cars work. What, so I just Googled the Dodge 330 because I'm not familiar with it. What year did you say it was? 
64. 64. Okay. It was made from 62 to 64. It it just kind of looks like your generic old sort of sporty sedan. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Generic. Yeah. So according to some, this is the car that inspired Stephen King's Christine, which we will talk about at length later. Oh, yes, we will. The legend goes that this Dodge was a police car. During its professional career, it was used by three different police officers, all of whom went on to commit murder and complete suicide. Wow. Yes. All three police officers. That's crazy. And it was all familial, right? Like they they killed their families and then themselves. Oh, sure. As, as, As you do. So, of course, right, these are just terrible, horrific events. And the rumors started to spread that the Dodge 330 was possessing its owners. So you could either believe that this car was actually evil mm-hmm. or you could say that, the you know, for whatever was happening in their lives, these three people did these horrible things. And so somebody tried to create like an urban legend around it, maybe to make it easier to swallow. Sure. Also, I want to say all of the real life stuff that I'm going to talk about is from uh, like almost like a bloggy type website. So yep. take it with a grain of salt. They're like fun urban legends. Right. BuzzFeed's you know, top 10 most murderous cars. Not, it's not BuzzFeed, but you know what I'm saying? It, they're not like from the New York Times. So for whatever reason, this car was not immediately destroyed after the third familial destruction. Sure. It somehow found its way to a woman named Wendy Allen. Okay. When Wendy drove on the highway, the car's doors would open on their own and the steering wheel would jam. Hmm. This doesn't seem very safe. <laughs> The legend continued that a church group heard about the car and they decided, right, that they wanted to try and ruin the car so that it would no longer be drivable and it couldn't hurt anybody else. I mean, that seems like a sensible thing for a church group to do. Sure. Like, yeah, I like a a church group that's up to vandalize, you know? You ever ever go to like one of those fundraisers where it's like smash the car for $5? No, but that would be fun. Get out some rage. Do you know what I'm talking about, though? Yeah, I do. I mean, yeah, it's... Uh, honestly, they're a bit disappointing. Oh, you've done it? Of course I've done it. How many times? Uh, not too many because it's disappointing. Why? So you, you get the sledgehammer, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, all of the glass has been removed from the car. Oh. Oh, sure. So that's Right, because, like, that's yeah. a huge safety concern. There's only so much damage you can do to a sledge to a giant block of metal with a sledgehammer, unless you're, like, Superman. Hulk Hogan? In which Hogan? case, why do you... Why do you, Hulk Hogan. What was his name? The Hulk. The Hulk. <laughs> Hulk Hogan, the rest, who's also a very muscular man. Yeah. He could probably do some more damage than your average person. He's the blonde one, right? Yes. Yeah. With with the bandana. Yeah, and the mustache. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. We're talking about the same thing. We Yeah, yeah sort of. <laughs> but yeah, you, you, you give the car a whack sure. for $5. Uh-huh. So one whack per $5? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's $5. You get three whacks or something. Okay. And, you know, it's just like somebody donates a, a beater. Beater, yeah. Right? And then you just you, you destroy it. Okay. Which is a good time, in theory. Frustrating, because also, you know, I think I also did this when I was like a child. Right, so you couldn't even lift the sledgehammer. Right, because I got those little noodle arms. <laughs> they have those uh, rooms now, you can, like destruction rooms, where, you know, it's like, oh, you broke up with your boyfriend, you can go to the break all the shit room and you wear like a hazmat suit and they give you a hammer and it's just filled with things you can break with your friends really yeah like a paintball thing but it's just vases and fans and guitars whatever and and you have a a hammer and you you and your friends go in and just like break everything 
Wow, it's almost like growing up by a scrapyard. Yeah, which you have lots of experience with. Did you would did you go to the scrapyard and destroy shit? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that the most satisfying thing to destroy mm-hmm. is CRT televisions. Oh, that's the one that's like just like an old television, right? It's right, like a the, block. the giant box. Yeah. So, how thick do you think the glass is on a CRT television? A millimeter. A millimeter. Yeah, I think it's thin. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's about four to five inches thick. It's crazy, crazy thick. How do you even destroy it then? Excellent question. <laughs> so, you know, the first time we were breaking one of these, because also that's why it's so heavy. Your dad let you do this? This was kosher? Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, then he has some broken glass everywhere, but you know, he's, whatever. It's, you know. It's a scrapyard. Scrapyard. Uh, you just gotta be careful. No flip flops. No, God, no. But, you know, you have, you know, you take like pipes and bats and stuff and you can throw, you know, you're, th- you're throwing stuff, you're whacking it. It's like, it's really hard to break those. But the best way that like our personal favor is when you take like a pipe valve, like, you know, like the water shutoff valve that you, the, the fireman spin, you know, uh-huh. uh, you take one of those and you throw it like a discus <laughs> and like th- that just like tears through it. I did discus in high school. Did you? Mm-hmm. You'd be very good at this then. Uh, who said I was good at discus? I imagine dropping it off of the roof would also break it pretty easily. Yeah, but again, these are so freaking heavy. These TVs weigh like 50 pounds. Was this you and your friends doing this? Of course. After you were chugging the sodas? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we would just get so amped up on <laughs> on on Big Fizz Cola. That, and Sugar then, rush. And then, yeah, just uh, destroy these things. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. So you had the fun house in, in T- middle school, that's T- what you're saying. TVs were, I mean, TVs were fun. You know, a bunch of stuff like, you know, like just appliances, washing machines, fridges. Like, again, they're fun to hit, but like mm-hmm. they're hard to destroy because they're blocks of metal. It's why they're a scrapyard in the first place. Right. And like, it's just, a, it's very hard to just do a lot of damage to these things that have a lot of structural integrity. Mm-hmm. Computer towers, on the other hand, just like you can rip those apart like butter. But yeah, they just melt away in your mouth. You know, I had a very speckled past. Okay. okay. So this is not me now. Uh-oh. However, one of the most fun things that you can do with to, with like a with computer components like a motherboard or something is sure. burn is burn it. So there's so many different metals and chemicals and everything that the fire changes to all these different colors as the components burn. It's really cool. It's just super bad for the environment. Like the Aurora Borealis. It's, but mixed, yeah, like the redneck Aurora Borealis, yes. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, you just, you throw a a motherboard onto like a a barrel fire. Yeah. um, And it just, yeah, you get all sorts of colors. Then you breathe it in and get real high. Yep. (laughs) We got a little off topic here. So we've been talking about murdering machines, not <laughs> now, mach- yeah. Now yeah. let's get back on for mach- Mur- murderous motors. So right, the the church group they decided to go and try to destroy the car with with all of Alan's childhood friends, and unfortunately, they realized it's freaking hard. They realized it was hard. They gave up. No, so they did. They actually had some success, right? And they kind of beat up the car a little bit. But very sadly, many of those people were killed in a car accident. So they weren't just like on the side of the road doing this and the 18-wheeler comes by. 
No, it, it was written in a way where it made it sound like it was soon after, but not immediately. Got it. So the spirit of the car contacted its car friends. Yeah. That's nuts. Well, this one also could be more like curse, you know, like the curse was passed along. Oh, sure, sure. So one church member that wasn't killed in the accident, that somehow survived the accident or wasn't in the car, they ended up getting killed by being struck by lightning. Whoa. Yes. And that wasn't the end of it. In 2007, so much more recently, things got even worse. Apparently, a child touched the car and went on to kill their entire family. Oh, oh, hold on. Yeah. The car was still around in 2007? Uh-huh. This is from the 60s. Well, the car is from 64. It was probably at like a scrap metal yard or something. That, still, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Why would... Christine would still be around. It's a long time for a car to be around that's not like a collector's piece. So at this point, a church group, unclear if it was the same church group or a different one, took the car apart and sent the pieces to different junkyards across the country to ensure that it would never hurt anyone else ever again. And every one of those junkyards were struck by lightning. And one of them was yours. No. And so, yeah, that's the story of the most evil car in America. Uh, my father was ahead of his time. Oh, yeah? So, you know, but my my father was the fourth generation mm-hmm. of running the scrapyard among my family and never would touch cars. That was Why? The, well, I mean, the official reason okay. was that, you know, you just, you get, in, it's, a, it's a whole different world when you're uh, scrapping cars. Sure. For one, it's just requires a lot of different machinery. Mm-hmm. Two, you have the whole world of sh- if a car comes in, should you like try to save some parts on it? Should you try to sell it as right. parts? You know, it's just a whole it's, exactly. It's it's a whole level extra level of complication. And on top of that, the storage for these is huge. You know. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a pile of appliances. A pile of cars is huge. You just need the space for it. Um, and this was kind of a small little scrapyard. That was the official reason. Okay. The, the books, the the officially recorded reason. Right. The off the books reason yeah. is clearly because he wanted nothing to do with murderous motors. <laughs> That's right. He's a smart guy. Exactly. One you of the d- smartest I know. Do you really want to scrap something that carries a curse? Probably not. Probably not. So you're saying it's unlikely that... Like copper pipes and things have curses. Um, Correct. Okay. Copper and brass inherently are antibacterial things. That's right. They kill the substances. They can't survive on the surface. They kill evil. So theoretically, yes, exactly. Germs are evil. I Theoretically, the curse would naturally be eliminated as well. Right. You ring the brass bell, you know, to ward off spirits. Yeah. That's a thing. I, I do it all the time. I'm going to caveat this next portion even more so. Okay. Because this is about a real life famous person. And I'm more so telling this to represent the folklore that exists around this real tragic event. Not to glorify that. Not to glorify like making this tragic death paranormal or any other piece of it, not to glorify what happened. But I, I just want to caveat, because this is like based on a real named person versus the last one, which was all kind of like unnamed people. Can I guess? Yeah. This is going to be the car mm-hmm. where they found OJ's gloves. No. Right state, wrong year. 
Okay. What is it? James Dean. Oh. The the Duke. <laughs> so there are all... He's not the Duke. Who's the Duke? I have no idea. It's like Burt Reynolds or somebody. <laughs> I don't know. So there are also legends around the car that James Dean died while he was driving. In 1954, actor James Dean became interested in motorsports after filming one of my favorite films, East of Eden. Sorry, you like that movie? Yeah. You don't like it? I've never seen it. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Have you read the book? Yes, I think I had to for class. I think we were filming like, or we were studying adaptations in film school. Was the book good? I don't remember. No. I mean, this is pretty unimportant. It's just been on my bucket list forever. Oh. Just wondering if you're like, oh, wow. Such it's a, a good It's book. like a love, it's like a romance, which is why I really liked it at the time because James Dean also is very good looking. I was like, oh, cool. Oh, I'm yeah. into this. Mm. Ooh. So James Dean purchased a Porsche 356 and a Triumph Tiger T110. That's a motorcycle, isn't it? I have no idea. I think, I'm pretty sure the Triumph is a motorcycle. Okay. That makes sense. That's why maybe he needed two. The next year, in 1955, he raced in a professional race in Palm Springs, California. And he actually came in first place in the novice class and second place in the main event. Wow. So his first ever event, he did great. Right, because everyone was just like hanging out their window trying to get a look at him. (laughs) He continued to race with the hopes that one day he would be able to compete in the famous Indy 500. The dream of us all. (laughs) But unfortunately, his filming schedule that year prevented him from doing so. So later in 1955, Warner Brothers banned him from racing while he was filming Giant. Which is interesting because that's like a super common thing now. And I wonder if this all started with James Dean. Probably. I mean, they were right to do so, right? I mean, sure. It's the same idea of why a lot of actors are not allowed to do their own stunts. Right. Yeah. Beyond just the liability. Right. But yeah. The whole project is at risk and the millions of dollars. I mean, not to minimize people's lives, but that's what these studios are thinking about. No, we're not minimizing people's lives. You're saying if this actor, just because they want to feel like a tough guy, does their own stunts. Looking at you, Tom Cruise. Yeah. I, 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 I'm just going to paraphrase because I don't remember his exact quote, but Danny Trejo said something really awesome on the topic. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, he's he's been playing the macho man for decades. Yeah. And he doesn't do his own stunts. And somebody like, I think in an interview, just like called him out on it, just like in a joking way, but he got real serious. He said that he's not going to put the jobs of the hundreds of people that are working on this production in jeopardy just so that he can feel like a tough guy. Totally. That's such a good stance. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, these professional stuntmen, first off, hats off to them because, totally. holy cow, what they do is so ridiculously difficult. They're, they, like, they spend their lives training for this. If you are going to... It's sometimes as simple as like falling down the stairs, right? There's a lot of training that goes into falling down the stairs. Um, I remember the very first time that I was working with a stunt person uh, on on a movie. And it actually was that the stunt was uh, like two guys. It was was an action movie. uh, And two guys are like fighting at the top of a staircase. And one guy grabs the other by like the shirt collar and just throws him down the stairs. Right. Yikes. And so I'm thinking, wow can't wait to see like what the Hollywood, like what Hollywood is going to do. Right. Like what's the secret to like looking like someone is falling down the stairs right. safely. 
And so like, I just strike up the conversation with the guy. He's like, oh, I'm just going to fall down the stairs. But he knows how to fall. He knows how to fall. Uh, Answers know how to fall. And, you know, a lot of that is like, you kind of like make like the without look. And that's where the acting comes in. Uh, You basically protect your head. uh, You kind of roll. Uh, and you just like, you kind of protect your vital organs, right? While looking like it's as painful as possible. And, you know, they wear like the armadillo pads and which is just like the, the roller skating pads. Uh, sort of the armadillo pads are like, you know, you know, how like an armadillo has like the plates that shift into each other. Mm-hmm. They wear that because it's like super thin and it moves like plate armor, plate armor. Uh, sort of, um, I don't want to be confused. You're talking like plate armor would be actually the opposite. Because that would be just a like, solid, like piece. suit of like a suit of armor, like the joints on a suit of armor. Yeah. Yes, um, and like they wear that underneath the clothing, and that protect. And so, like they roll in a way so that it, they try to hit the uh, the pads, uh, while the places that are unex there are exposed. Obviously, they just try to protect them. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because I think a lot of actors often by the public, by audiences are like, oh man, like Tom Cruise does his own stunts. That's so cool. That's so badass. That's so brave. But you're totally right that not only are you putting yourself at risk, it's not just that you're risking yourself, you're risking the jobs of all of the people that are working on set or on the film at all, post-production producers, all of these people who have invested money. Yep. And especially if it's like an indie film or a small film, it doesn't even matter. There's, you know, there's so many people who that is their livelihood. And that obviously is a really big deal. Right. So I was actually working on a zombie film years ago. Our main actor threw a stunt, twisted his ankle. And this was like halfway through production. So like we still had like a ways to go. What do you do in that situation? It's a zombie movie and it requires so much running. And so like now we're in a huge pickle. Like this is just a, this is just like a little movie, you know? Yeah. We don't have the option to push production to like later dates cuz like all the equipment has been rented and everything. So you do just change the storyline? Had to change the storyline, which is kind of crazy. You're rewriting the movie simply because we didn't have the well in that case we didn't have the ability to use stunt people because of the budget and everything yeah but like that's what's at stake you can literally put an entire project in jeopardy simply because somebody is doing their own stunts this is real world out there so after the production of giant right we're we're back 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 to james jimmy dean yeah after the production of giant he decides to race again once the sort of warner brothers ban has been lifted he trades in one of his cars for a 1955 Porsche 550 Spider. Oh, we love the Spider. I think my dad had a Spider. What? And then, or he ruined somebody else's Spider. He drove a Spider into a tree at one point. These are really expensive cars. We'll have to get the story from him. I, if your father wrecked one of these cars, holy cow! I think he wrecked several of them. What? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a Spider. I thought he had one. These well, are like these are like quarter million dollar cars. Well, it wasn't more, a quarter million dollars, I'll tell you that. I just Googled the top search result for how much is a Porsche 550 Spider worth. According to top speed, the, the car sold for $3.6 million back in uh, 2012. However, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's 550 Spider is worth $5.35 million. Okay, it's definitely not that. <laughs> well, your, your father wrecked multiple. But it was some sort of convertible. 
that he ruined. He ruined several convertibles, I believe. One was his own and one was a friend's. Okay. We'll get the we'll get the lowdown when he listens to this and gives us a call. So on September 30th, 1955, James Dean and a small entourage started to drive from L.A. to Salinas, California, towards a race that he had entered. Right. Oh. So they're kind of they're checking out towards the race. If Salinas involved, this is bad. Salinas, California. Okay. At 3.30 p.m., Dean was pulled over and given a ticket for speeding, as was the car behind him, which was driven by his friend. Around 5.45 p.m., a car pulled out in front of Dean, who was unable to stop in time. He collided with the car in front of him, and his car bounced across the road to the other side of the highway. His passenger was thrown from the car, but Dean was trapped inside and sustained fatal injuries. Oh, no. Unfortunately, the graphic end to one of America's beloved up-and-coming actors turned into an urban legend about the car he was driving when he died. After his death, one of Dean's motorsport-slash-car friends, named George Barris, who is going to come into play later, sold parts of the car to drivers. So, George Barris is friends with Dean. He's, He's like a customizer for Hollywood, like a car customizer. Okay. So he comes into possession of the car after Dean's death and he like kind of hands out parts of the car to drivers who are kind of looking for like a piece of this expensive historic car. Sure. So the story goes that a pair of doctors purchased the engine and the drive train respectively. Okay. After they incorporated these parts into their own cars, they set out to race in Pomano, California. Unfortunately, they crashed and one of the doctors was killed in the process. So whether it was because he caught wind of the curse or he just wanted to be rid of it, George Barris decided to donate the rest of the car that he had. So he still had the body and some remaining parts. So he donates all of this to the California Highway Patrol. They wanted to use the wreckage to demonstrate the dangers of driving irresponsibly, like to minors, to the youth. Okay. The car was originally stored in a garage. Unfortunately, the garage burned down and the car was totally fine. But the garage sort of burned down around it. What the hell? The California Highway Patrol took the wreckage on tours to high schools until it fell off of a transport truck en route and caused a fatal accident. (laughs) This car. The car was said to have dislodged itself from the transport trailer three more times. It's also said that it somehow fell on a student and crushed their hip. But the weirdest part of this story is that the car somehow disappeared in 1960 and its whereabouts are still unknown. Oh, yeah, that's super suspicious. Um, and again, that you was know, sarcasm. Someone tr- stole grain it. Grain of salt, grain of salt. Yeah. Someone obviously stole this and is in a private collection somewhere. So there's another story that I wanted to share here with you. Okay. So it's December of 2002. Okay. The Surrey police, they're just minding their business. They're in their little police station. Okay. The phone is ringing all night long. And they keep getting reports of cars being like, oh, my God, right in front of me or when I was driving home or whatever. These headlights just swerved off the highway. A car just swerved off the highway. They get like multiple reports like all night. Okay. So they set out to try to obviously like find this wreckage and help the person. And, you know, they go out to the scene and they go up and down the highway where everybody said that the car was. They can't find anything. After a very long time, they do find and a car that had been in an accident, but it was quite a while ago, so long ago that the car was now covered with like natural growth. Oh, wow. And it turns out that that 
car had crashed five months earlier and nobody had been aware of it. Hmm. So many people believe that the lights that people kept seeing that night was the ghost of the car that was trying to be found by police. Ghost and, car. Yeah, it wanted to kind of have its driver, right, finally laid to rest properly. Oh, wow. And then one final example that I have for you. In 2002, the jumping car of Cape Town... Sorry, what? ...scared crowds in South Africa. <laughs> While the car was completely turned off, right, no one was inside, no keys were in the ignition... The car backed up a hill twice. The owners also claimed that the parking brake was on during this whole thing. And there are some theories about a rusty cable, which might explain the car starting on its own, but certainly does not explain how a car could back up a hill twice. Okay, so its main supernatural feat is that it drove backwards up a hill twice. Two times. Okay. This one doesn't exactly give me chills. Okay, listen. It's pretty popular. (laughs) So those are the the real-life hauntings and rumors of possessed cars that I could find. Sure. uh, Those are some good ones. Like the the ghost car. I like that. Do we have a story of a ghost car coming? We have... We do have a stories episode to go with this episode, if that's what you're asking. I, I hope there's ghost cars. Well, you'll have to wait and see one more week. Cool. (laughs) so we did watch quite a few films and read a novel for this episode there there was a bit of preparation that went into it we are now going to discuss because right this actually turned out to be a trope in fiction and horror a little bit more often than i thought there's there's more than one or two examples so we're going to talk about some of the films and books now that feature evil engines i mean that's where the whole idea for this episode came from yeah well i mean we're talking about the history of horror right so oh yeah we've talked about the history now it's time to talk about the horror yeah so where do you want to start i want to start with the most infamous the car no i want to start with christine oh yeah okay so in 1983 stephen king's christine was published the book the main character is a 1958 plymouth fury it turned out to be possessed by evil entities One thing I'm going to say, I did not quite finish the entire novel because it was okay. I listened to an audiobook version of it. I was, I kind of had low expectations and we watched the film and I loved it. So I would recommend, maybe this was just me, but I would recommend starting with the film. I think the film is really good. This movie rocked. So I'll let you give a little plot summary in a second, Alan. Sure. But... So the very same year that the book came out, 1983, the film version was made. And it was directed by none other than John Carpenter. The film stars Keith Gordon and John Stockwell, though it almost starred Scott Bayo, Brooke Shields, and Kevin Bacon. But Bayo and Shields were rejected by filmmakers, and Bacon passed it up to work on Footloose, which I think was the right move. Debatable. <laughs> it was produced by Richard Corbett's, and he had produced a miniseries version of Stephen King's famous novel, Salem's Lot. And once inside sort of like the Stephen King circle, the author sent Corbett's manuscripts of both Christine and Cujo. But Corbett's felt drawn to Christine and bought the rights to the film. Though Carpenter was Corbett's first choice to direct, he almost wasn't able to take on the project because he was working on another King adaptation at the time, Firestarter which we talked about in our Pyromania episode. Please reference episode 37. Is that what it is? 
It might be. <laughs> because of production delays, however, he was able to fit Christine into his schedule. So he was working on two King projects at the same time. In order to source enough cars for filming, Carpenter ran ads across Southern California, I think like like billboards and ads, and was able to find 24 cars in different states of disrepair in order to portray the progression of the car throughout the film. Total gross... Christine brought in over $21 million in the U.S. Okay. Okay, now I turn the floor to you. What was the budget, though? We don't know. $30. Yeah. What What a return on investment. That's yeah. incredible. Incredible. So I'm actually, I, I can't in good conscience give a summary of this movie. I loved it too much. So? Was that blur your vision? No, I, I don't want to give any spoilers. So. Well, then give a teaser. Oh, yeah, I'll give a teaser. So you have a like super, you know, nerdy high school kid getting, getting picked on, gets the short, gets the short end of the stick and just about everything. Arnie. Then he and his buddy stumble across this car that's for sale. Spoilers. It's Christine. (laughs) It's in complete disrepair. And then he sets out to fix it up. And in the process of fixing it up, it changes him a little bit, but also you know, the, the car might have a little bit of a mind of its own. Yeah, there you go. That's certainly a, a good teaser. It was very good. We both loved it. I think, I mean, listen, I think when you have Stephen King and John Carpenter, that's quite the duo. Oh, yeah. There was a scene, too. First, I, okay. There were a lot of butt shots in this film. You loved it. Clothed butts, but I just noticed it. There was There was quite a few. And there was a scene in the film sort of climax where the soundtrack is so similar to Halloween. Oh yeah. That was, was funny. Mr. Mr. Carpenter just, you know, playing what he had around. <laughs> yeah. His, one of his early drafts. Okay. This is going to be a small spoiler. Okay. Fair enough. So if you want to see this movie, you really should just go watch it immediately. <laughs> the, my favorite thing about this was uh, a mythos that we have yet to see in any of the other movies that we watched for this episode okay and that was the self-repairing car Mm. which makes it so goddamn scary (laughs) like the the, because it feels unstoppable it does yeah the scene the first time when like christine's first kill when the she chases some kid down he runs into an alley that's too narrow for the car to fit down it's like okay great yeah if you there's a car that can kill you just get somewhere that it can't drive you know it's not this is not rocket science but then when christine just starts barreling down the alley and just like rips herself apart and still kills him it's like oh wow this is scary as shit i remember when that scene happened you were like oh my god <laughs> it was intense. And, so intense and then she just repairs herself so it is it, it's it's like a holy shit how could you possibly even stop this car right and it's i i'm i'm actually very curious to read the novel because i'm I, I wonder if it goes more in depth into like the rules and regulations behind like what christine can do right like the canon of it yes uh because uh, stephen king's pretty good about that um where like they make a he makes a very strict set of rules uh that the supernatural has to follow and that's one of the reasons why i love his uh the the mythos that he builds so much i never realized that about him that's interesting uh because you know that's also 
one of the things that like makes a lot of his villains scarier than say Jason Voorhees, right? right? Where it depends on, it's like, oh, we're just going to make up new rules for him. Now he's invincible. Now he can do this. Now he has this superpower, you know, uh, where, I mean, granted, Stephen King's usually working in one shot, uh, like one shot movies or books. Well, specifically books. What do you mean? One, sh- like, like not a ongoing series. Right. Mean? It's a self-contained thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, outside it, of like dark tower, but yeah. Right. But it has a start and an end. Um, and it's not going through multiple different creatives, but just from the abstract, that's one of the reasons that his villains are so scary because they follow a set of rules. Sure. And I yeah. love that. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. It's, Interesting that you pointed that out. I haven't noticed it, but now I will keep my eyes open for it. And yeah, because I, I, like I would, I, I really wonder like what fuels Christine. No, no pun intended. <laughs> uh-huh. Is it? Does she need some kind of symbiotic relationship with the driver? I think she does. That's my theory because earlier in the film, when they find her, because she's had a whole history. This she's not like a new car, and we sort of see some of her history. Yep. But she's sitting in this guy's yard, and she's totally turned off and if she if she had that power why wouldn't she just go around and be destruction i feel like either she requires somebody to sort of possess and feed off of which is kind of what you would expect expect just based on how she also impacts the main character but she maybe she also like just enjoys that part but the guy who she was with at the beginning you know maybe he was immune to it for whatever reason i well that's the thing he never drove Christine, the the form the the guy who owned her, uh, it was his brother's car. Yeah. Well, you assume he drove her to get her to his house or something, right? But I think Christine fell into disrepair because she was heartbroken. Oh. I think she falls in. I, I think like she actually falls in love with her drivers, mm. and like in full full on succubus bleeds them dry from a mental emotional stamina standpoint, right? right just drive drives them crazy but not out of a place of maliciousness the mali- i mean clearly she's a very malicious entity but most of that comes from jealousy most of the victims that she hunts down throughout the story are people that antagonize the driver she, people that have wrong or people that love the driver that too yeah and he, anyone that basically engages with the driver is Except becomes for a target Dennis. Yeah, I think you just kind of brought a few points to my head. The first is that there's actually a moment in the film where where Arnie, the main character, says he's like describing love as this like very passionate, Mm -hmm. destructive thing. And you kind of think he's talking about his girlfriend, but he's talking about Christine. And the other thing that we sort of talked about while we were watching the film was that this was one of the first films I or only films that really come to mind for me where I was really invested in Christine as a character and she was not a human or like humanoid, right? She was an inanimate object or an animate object, but she was an object. And I was, first of all, really into her. I was like, she's powerful. She has a personality. She's like devilish and devious and hardcore and strong. And I was like, she's like a strong female lead, even though she's a car. And it really was like, very surprising to see that or to have that emotional reaction to a car <laughs> without saying a single line of dialogue. Right. I mean, 
a, she does flash her lights. She flashes her and lights. And she has a stereo. Right. And she plays, she, she has select songs she plays on the radio. But still, through just this limited engagement, she's a more well-rounded character than so many people in movies. Totally. And I actually really like, there's some interesting soundtracks we're going to talk about today with these movies, but mm-hmm. I really enjoy the soundtrack in Christine. And I think it does like give her a lot of her personality. It's all kind of like old school 50s rock and roll. And it, it definitely lends to the era she's from and, you know, and all of these things. And I just want to say this too. Okay. I wrote a story or two for the story episode about this. Mm -hmm. And one of them, there's a scene in Christine where it actually feels very similar in some ways to the story that I wrote. And I just want to say to the public now that I wrote the story before I saw the film or read the book. So I did not realize the connection to it at the time. But I think when you think about killer cars, it's it, you'll see what the story is next week, but there is sort of a natural connection. So I just want to say that. And as much credit as we're giving Stephen King for making this really great character. Yeah. We got to also shout out to John Carpenter for just knocking this one out of the park. Oh, totally. I mean, again, I was the the film or the book for me was a little slow. And uh, like the characters talk in a very, in a, like they're teen boys. So they like make fun of people's weight a lot. They, they say like gross things about sex a lot. They're kind of like... In the book, they're a cringe eye roll for me, and I get what he's trying to do, where I'm like, okay. But it, it kind of just goes on and on, and I think I was kind of tuning it out. Whereas in the movie, I, I do think it works a little better, and there's a lot of scenes that made us feel sorry for Arnie, whereas in yeah. the book, it's a lot of a slower burn, and I kind of didn't feel that invested in him. I'd say the what you're talking about is yeah. pretty evident in the film in the f- beginning. Oh, yeah. And then a lot of that drops away. And once you lose this banter among teens, you realize just how affected Arnie is by having this car in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think like that kind of talk was a very was pretty good for establishing it as a period piece. You know, like er- early 80s. I don't know what the early 80s are, but based off Christine, clearly that's it. Yeah. And again, I'm not like judging Stephen King for that choice. And I think it probably landed better. I just think it didn't age super well. You no, know, sure. It was just like, a, OK. So, yeah. Any other Christine thoughts? Just everyone who has not seen this film needs to watch this film. Th- through doing this podcast, uh, I, I've just I've obviously watched a lot of horror movies. <laughs> yes. Um, and discovered so many things by authors or directors that I was familiar with their other work Mm -hmm. and just didn't know that they'd made this. Like I had no idea that there was a John Carpenter movie about a killer car. Totally. And that's amazing. It's amazing. This (laughs) this might be one of my favorite horror movies. Oh, wow. We've said that a lot with John Carpenter. Like obviously there's the thing and there's Halloween, but which are both our, favorite horror films or top horror films for us respectively. But we watched the fog and we were blown away and we watched Christine and we were like, I think we John Carpenter needs an episode at some point. Yep. That's going to be an easy one. (laughs) After that glowing review, I think we got to adjust our levels for a second so that we can talk 
We're not talking about these in order, by the way, <laughs> but so that we can talk about the car from 1977. Ah, the superior film. <laughs> Sarcastically, he says. Oh my, it's so bad. Directed by Elliot Silverstein and starring none other than James Brolin. Things come full circle for us here because the car from the film was designed by George Barris. Remember from the James Dean story? Who is he again? So he was like a Hollywood car customizer who was friends with James Dean and came into possession of his car after he died and was the one who sold it, sold the parts off to people. Got it. The car in in the car is a was a highly customized 1971 Lincoln Continental Mark III. <laughs> and fun fact, the car cost $84,000 to build in 1977. Wow. Quoting from Wikipedia, there were four cars built for the film in six weeks. Three were used as stunt mules, the fourth for close-ups. The stunt mules were destroyed during productions, while the fourth is now in a private collection. Also, before we talk about it further... We should say the car was the first film or like, like it predates the book, Christine and the film, Christine. Sure. So it's one of the earlier versions or examples that we have of a murderous motor situation. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, the car was not received well. It only has a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it is an important horror film when specifically looking at the possessed or killer car genre again, because it was because it was one of the first, if not the first, the New York times review quote has all the ingredients of a parody. Although someone has made the mistake of doing it straight end quote. Mm. And for some reason, despite the bad reception in 2019, 42 years after the original film, a spinoff sequel was released called the car road to revenge. I mean, it's a cool premise. It's just a bad movie. Tell us the premise. Okay, I have no problems giving spoilers for this one. <laughs> so, small, sleepy town in where? What, what state are we in? Desert country. In desert state. One road in, in ta- run road into town, one road out. You Felt know? like a western in some ways to me. Sure, yeah, everyone's a cowboy out there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, a car shows up and starts running people over. And people are like, what? <laughs> Is, who's driving that car? And then they realize, no one's driving that car. <laughs> then there's like one little twist when people like flee to a cemetery and the car can't get in. And then somebody figures out, ah, it's the hollowed ground. The car is evil. And then there's a elaborate plot to try to get the car into like a canyon and then blow it up with dynamite or something. It's really convoluted. I'll say you actually are making it sound right now a lot more interesting than it was. It, you're The way you're describing it, I'm like, oh, I would watch that. And then I'm also like, oh, I just watched it and it wasn't that interesting. It's just, again, it's uh, the premise is cool. Yeah. The execution is bad. Yes. But however, I do have to be fair. Okay. The first 25% of the movie rocks, and, but that has nothing to do with the car. <laughs> okay. So James Brolin... In his whole character arc about how, you know, he's split with his wife. Uh, he has two daughters and he has like this new girlfriend that he's like trying to s- sneak in and out of the house to not upset his daughters. And then his daughters, you know, accost him and are like, dad. They're pretty young. Yeah, they're, they're, they're little kids. Five, yeah. And they're like, you know, why can't she just stay over? We know about her. And, you know, there's just that moment of you realize he was doing this. 
he was actually just trying to protect his kids from the idea of their father dating someone right. who's not their biological mother. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is like, you just, that's a real human situation. And the performances were killer. And then this car shows up and ruins the goddamn movie. <laughs> yeah. So you really like the characters and then it all goes to shit. Yep. During, you know, when talking about Christine, I, I said one of the reasons why I loved it so much was the mythos of you know, Christine and her powers and, you know, of like what that looks like in this, it was just stupid. (laughs) It's this car that can, can do anything. And also it can deflect bullets for no other reason than it would probably be expensive to keep shooting a car. And, you know, Christine had to heal a thousand times, right? Sure. In this one, the car takes no damage ever. doesn't matter what happens. They just cut away at the right times. Uh, and then the car is fine or they just shoot blanks at the car and say, I missed you didn't miss the car is indestructible. <laughs> it's just like doesn't cheap. land quite. No, as well. it's cheap filmmaking tricks. Yeah. And I like the, we didn't really talk about this that much, but we did mention that Christine self heals and we should just say how impressive that those cinema tricks are. It looks so well done. Oh, I mean, it's a hundred percent. I, I mean, I was really looking at it like with the magnifying glass. Yeah. Uh, you could tell that they were using a lot of models. Still, it to me, uh, it looked totally Oh, believable. yeah, but no, just like it's exactly what John Carpenter did for like The Thing, mm-hmm. where, you know, your everything is practical effects uh, and just, you know, small scale, but like lit in just the right way. So everything sells. Right. Uh, and it looks perfect. In this, like they didn't, and honestly, none of the effects uh, look bad because there's no effects. Right. Nothing happens. Yeah. They shoot blanks <laughs> at the car. Uh, it just like sometimes it rams into things. And then when it pulls back, the car is fine. Right. That's it. That's just all you lazy. got. I mean, it's not, it's just, you know, it's, it's a budgetary Easier. concern. Right. Sure. I mean, I imagine it would be a, vi- it would be because again, this movie was the first of its kind. Mm-hmm. There was no precedent. And to invest all this money, and they had a very iconic-looking car. Um, and that I'll, I'll admit, the look of the car was pretty cool. It looked... Yeah, it does look cool. ...completely unique. Yeah. It's not a possessed... As you said, it was a heavily modified Lincoln Continental. Yeah. Um, but key element is being heavily modified. Yeah, George Barris did a good job with that. It just looks like a generic evil car. It does. I would, I thought it had like a similar like visual, not, it's clearly a very different car than Christine in many ways, Mm -hmm. but it has that like menacing when you have those shots that are straight on the front grill, they both sort of have like the same menacing vibe to them. Yeah. Like they're similar that way. Uh, I was at first really respecting this film for a while because most of the, 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 the horror elements happen during the day. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's if yeah, yeah, exactly. I, it's weird to me because of that. Well, you not know, weird, but it's different. It is different, and that's why I was respecting it because it's like okay, so not to be attempted again until midsummer, uh, <laughs> but which you've yet to watch. Yeah, but then the whole la- the whole grand finale, which is like twenty minutes, they make the weirdest production decision 
to film it during the day. Oh, yeah. And then just stop the aperture down and make it stupidly underexposed to sell it as night. I thought there was something wrong with like the projector we were watching it on. No, that's how it looked. It's, you know, cause the, the, the giveaway is always the clouds. I know, but it looked like my projector was starting to fall asleep. Yeah. Like that's what it looked like. <laughs> it was so dark. You could barely see what's going on. And we're, lo- we're looking at like close-ups of people talking to each other with a beautifully lit sky behind them. And then just like super dark faces, like silhouettes. Almost. Uh, almost. Like but the features were all kind of groggy. Sort of, but the definition was all there because mm-hmm. they were clearly lit well. It was just underexposed. Yeah. It was just, again, that's lazy filmmaking. Sure. Um, or no, I'm sorry. I'm being unfair. It's very expensive to film night exterior, especially when you're trying to shoot in a giant expanse like the desert. Because then you have to start. But I mean, hold on. They paid $84,000 to build this custom car. Which is a lot of money in 1977. So while, yes, maybe that's where the budget went. But I think what ended up happening was that the, the, these filmmaking parts that suffered a little bit took us out of it too much, you know, like they, they didn't allocate things in the right way. So fun fact, just more filmmaking tips and tricks. When you are trying to film in a large area of like the desert, right? Or just sorry, if you're trying to like light up like a large outdoor area, like a, a field or this, you know, patches of the desert, you sure. know, unless you have like a nearby, you know, mountain or hill or something to put like your giant, like 18K or something. That's a light. Yeah. It's a, it's a daylight balanced light, 18,000 watts. That would just, you know, like you, you can shoot Blood. it direct. Yeah. Oftentimes they'll use a weather balloon. Mm-hmm. And so you just a giant silk weather balloon, right? And then they have all these powerful units on the ground that hit it. And so like picture, hold, like a, take like a balloon and hold your, like a, a flashlight up to it. You know how it's going to start glowing? Sure. Well, it does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is now the moon. They right. basically, basically make a giant artificial moon. It's kind of yeah, cool. it's very cool. And it's very expensive. Yeah. I'll do it for you for cheap. Give me a call. Great. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. The car was, again, we'll give it props for having a really cool car, for being the first of its kind, for having James Brolin. But beyond that, I think it... And for having some woke kids. Yeah, there you you go. Dads have to be happy, too. That's right. Everyone deserves happiness. But it it wasn't something I would recommend to anybody. Nope. (laughs) All right. Now we're going to talk about a film... But I think you and I have very, I don't know, I'm interested to see what your opinion is. Sure. We are going to talk about Maximum Overdrive. Oh, yeah. Which is a comedy from 1986. How dare you? It has comedic elements. Okay. It is a film with comedic elements from 1986 that was written and directed by Stephen King. I had absolutely no idea that he had ever directed a film And I looked it up and this was the only film that he had ever directed. Because it went so well. It's based on a short story that he wrote called Trucks. And he wrote it in 1973. So that actually Trucks, the short story, would be the first known uh, media that we have in this genre. He really is a wordsmith when it comes to naming things. You need to back off people's titles, okay? (laughs) It's enough. It stars Emilio Estevez, Pat Hingle... Laura Harrington, 
And the entire soundtrack is by ACDC. John Perales of the New York Times, quote, By making the machine's malevolence so all-encompassing, so immoral, Mr. King loses the fill-up of retribution in better horror films. For the most part, he has taken a promising notion, our dependence on our machines, and turned it into one long car crunch movie wheezing from setups to crack-ups. From Variety, the kind of film audiences want to talk about, the kind that throws credibility out the window in favor of crass manipulation. Unfortunately, master manipulator Stephen King, making his directorial debut from his own script, fails to create a convincing enough environment to make the find of nonsense he's offering here believable or fun. Alan, give us the premise of maximum overdrive, if you will. Okay, here we go. So we're, we're in like the middle of the Cold War, right? Uh, we're, we're towards the tail end of the Cold War, but you know there's still a lot of anxiety about things in space. Sure. Sputnik. And, yeah. Uh, well, that was a little earlier. But there's a, uh, a meteor that's passing past Earth. And it's like a, a very unknown element and something is suspicious about it. And then all of a sudden, the radiation from this meteor technically hijacks every machine on the planet and makes it instantly homicidal. Including machine guns, which I don't know are technically machines. Well, uh, technically, technically, a lever is a machine. It's a simple machine. A pulley is a machine, you know? A wheel okay. is a machine. The, the, the you know the, we're t- this or so, is, okay these All are right. literally the definitions of simple machines okay it seemed that it's anything that runs on electricity or diesel not gasoline well i don't know no because there was the lawnmower this was the confusing bit personal cars unaffected for the most part trucks oh instant death which on the spectrum of machines personal cars and trucks are a lot closer than wheels and levers uh yeah absolutely so maybe stephen king isn't always so smart with his mythos uh no i i mean in the, this one was all over the place but anyways so the, the, everything becomes homicidal instant genocide on the human race and there's just like a handful of survivors right yeah and they hold out in this gas station that there's like one main truck that for some reason... It's like an evil green goblin on it. Well, it literally has the green goblin's face. It's the green goblin from Spider-Man. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, and I, just because it's not addressed in the film, but I'm like, I know that's the green goblin from Spider-Man. And I just like, I Googled it and like they went to the trouble of licensing it from Marvel, but then never address it. And Stephen King refuses to say why when asked the question. <laughs> very funny uh but yeah they did that so uh yeah this truck is like leads the other trucks i don't know at first truck i thought he was the head truck he's definitely the foremost truck for the first part of the film but then all these other trucks show up and he just kind of falls in line with all the rest yeah and then they're just like circling the 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 gas station and eventually they're the, the little uh, machine gun truck shows up. Yeah. I hated that part. So and it has a horn beeps in Morse code and like the little kid who's the boy scout says, Oh, they, they're commanding us to feed them gas. Yeah. And so then there's the, he, well, he was the point that he was a boy scout was important because that's how he knew Morse code. Right. 
but then the whole movie just takes like a hard left and it's not so much of like a horror it's not just like a horror movie anymore i mean was it ever Uh, before it was like a horror comedy right uh sure now it's just like a dystopian survival movie where you live in this society run by these trucks (laughs) the vibe of this movie is so bizarre especially once you it was already bizarre like from the beginning and then when i realized oh this was written and directed by stephen king it's not the film that you expect stephen king to have written and directed no and again with acdc i love it like there's so many parts of it that are like cool but it's it's just hard to wrap my head around like i like stephen king i like acdc but the movie itself is hard for me the the movie is very fun it's I'll disjointed give it though in many ways is it a great film no emilio estevez great is it fun so goddamn fun when like the super <laughs> abusive uh gas station owner yeah just like comes out wielding a rocket launcher and everyone's like where'd you get the rocket launcher and he's like mind your own business you know then you like that part yeah i did because but then they they justify it then you find out that he's got this massive cache of weapons and that's like his whole side business and it's like whoa this guy has some layers (laughs) and then you know that's that's you know that was also appreciated where you have all these gigantic trucks Mm -hmm. you know they're like semi-trailers right yeah how do you fight a semi-trailer there's only so many things you can do and one of the things is blow it up with a rocket launcher. Take out the tires. We, you just need a thing of spikes you can roll I mean, across the road. They have 18 of those. Yeah. Listen, what I believe, can I just say what I believe? Sure. Should it be the law? This is going to make me sound crazy. My One of my biggest pet peeves. Okay. It's people who honk when they don't need to and people who roll through red lights or stop signs. And I believe that the second your car does that, they should roll out spikes across the road automatically. Take them out. You don't deserve a car anymore. You don't deserve tires. Honk your horn, spikes. Run a red light, spikes. Wake up, people. You're behind the... You're in a vehicle. Lives are at stake. I think what you really want is rooftop snipers. No, I don't want to kill anybody. I just want to demobilize them. With a swift bullet through the neck. No, I don't want... No, of course not. My God. It's a very fun. It's a very fun movie. Uh, you, it's got it, a lot of energy. It's got a lot of energy, and it gives it to you in very cool ways. Sure, it's another desert film. It is. I mean, it's trucking in the in the middle of the U.S. Yeah, I think this is California, though. Oh, sure, but it's still it's like a desolate yep. trucker area. Yeah, like um, the hills have eyes vibe. A uh, little more populated, but s- s- slightly. Yeah, overall this movie was a lot of fun and like you like in similar to Christine, the uh the soundtrack brought a lot of very specific energy to the film. Yeah. And that was great. You know, it's a movie about everything that has a radio built in should have a lot of totally. fun music. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a setup for a great soundtrack. Mhm. From 2010, an English language but French production film, Rubber. Directed by Quentin Dupont, it tells the story of a tire that comes to life and kills people with telekinetic powers. It was originally screened at Cannes in 2010 and met with positive reviews. I rolled my eyes. 
You rolled your eyes? That was my review. It, it was cool. It was like, okay, sure, I get it. It's cool. It's interesting. It's It's very much like, to me... A director that's trying to be like an Aronofsky or a Coen Brothers. It's like a film. It's what I call like a film school movie, not meaning a movie that you watch in film school, meaning a movie that you make in film school. If you have a lot of money when you're going through your like trippy phase of questioning everything through the art of film and challenging formats of films like that was it felt like a little like, okay, to me, that's how I felt about it. I but I enjoy the premise. The telekinetic tires cool. Um, you know, but there was just like the whole thing at the intro with the police officer talking directly to the camera for so long. You know, it's like it had its moments for me. Why don't you why don't you give us the synopsis of this film, please? So the synopsis of this film is that <laughs> there's a bunch of people that get brought out to the desert, another desert film. And I think all of these, except for Christine, is, has been a desert film so far. And they're given binoculars by police officers and they leave. And then there's a car that's brought in and it goes through like all of these chairs. It's again, very artsy, very, you know, uh, Salvador Dali, if you will. The car comes in. <laughs> You're shaking your head at me. No, I just don't remember anything about this movie. Oh, the car comes in and... It gets blown up in front of all these people who are watching from a distance, right? So then all of the pieces of the car go flying and they're kind of like buried under the sand. And we start to watch as a tire starts to shake and move and it kind of comes to life on its own. And then the tire rolls around the desert and all these people are watching through their binoculars and they're obviously there for a reason. And they're like, they're making a film of this event. And they're kind of spectating and the tire moves through and very quickly discovers that it has telekinetic powers or we see that it does. And it, you know, at first it kind of like snaps a bottle and then it snaps, it kills, it blows up a rabbit. And then of course it goes on to start killing people. And I don't want to give away, you know, the whole plot of the film, but that's kind of the setup for it. You didn't think this was a cool movie? I'm not saying it's not cool at all. I'm saying there are some parts of it that took me out of it because it felt so film school. It felt so like someone trying to do something that they thought was so different. And, you know, it's like, okay, sure. And I think they did. I think they accomplished exactly that. It's a super unique movie. I, too, watched it in film school. (laughs) Uh, Because, yeah, it, it. In the genre of horror, right? we constantly encounter tropes or things that have been done before. And along comes a movie that is unlike anything else. Try to name a single movie like rubber, the car, Christine (laughs) maximum overdrive. No, those are about full cars. This is just, no, listen, I hear, I'm not trying to, I, I, I would say watch the film. If you're into horror at all, you should totally watch the film. And I'm not saying that it's a bad film or that I didn't think it was successful in a lot of ways. I'm saying for me, there are certain elements of it that felt like... Forced. Forced. That felt like we're trying to make this film into a poem. I'll give you that. And it was like, okay, sure. Like, And again, I think that works for a lot of people. And you can have really successful films that have that sort of take on life. The Big Lebowski, for example, right? Sure. 
I don't know that rubber was quite there, but I would definitely recommend it to people to watch if you haven't, 100%. I think that rubber on like the spectrum was a lot closer, not to like Big Lebowski, but closer to like Thanks Killing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Another fantastic film. No, I hate, I actually hate Thanks Killing. I hate it. I do not think it is not just a bad, like B horror film that you laugh at. It is. I hate it. I hate the things the turkey says. I hate the turkey. (laughs) I don't want to talk about things. He has quite the foul mouth. (laughs) So yeah, it was very funny. Rubber. I think again, you're right. It is a refreshing take on the trope, but you know, it had its moments. I like the idea because we're looking at through the lens of evil engines. Mm hmm where even the smallest part of an evil car can survive and kill. Yeah. I think that's so cool. It is. It's like, it's like if Christine or the car or any of these other cars were blown up, like what happens to the, the tire or the engine? It's kind of almost a callback to the rumors about the James Dean car, right? That even the engine or the drivetrain being put in different cars are causing accidents that the whole car is cursed. And it is, it, it is interesting, right? Because, a car like is almost totally unique in a, a, as a villain because you can take it apart. And so it has elements that can be taken apart and become even more constructive, destructive. They, something interesting. They address something very interesting about that in maximum overdrive where the waitress who's just like drunk out of her mind, mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, she's, she's cracked. She's cracked. She's, you know, she, she walks right out to the trucks and just starts screaming at him that, you know, we, we made you. And then this was right after the machine, little machine gun car shows up, uh, and just shoots her. Right. Um, but the dichotomy is that uh, you have what is supposed to be, uh, tools that humanity makes controls. And now you've completely lost that control. And it's now turned into this malicious force. And from that abstract, that's good horror. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that Christine didn't really dabble in too much of like, this should be something you control, but it isn't. Whereas in like maximum overdrive uh, or the car or rubber and whatnot, I guess it's because the things have no personality really. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess that's what it boils down to. You're not really too concerned about like Christine being a car. Right. Cause like she has so much to offer. Right. Yeah. She kind of, yes, yeah, she stands on her own. Okay. So there's one final thing I want to talk about. What's that? And that is season three, episode one, a Futurama. Ah, the honking. An episode called the honking. And actually, so in some places I saw it listed as season two, episode 18, but we watched it on Hulu season three, episode one. Shout out to my friend Anthony for this suggestion, which he was very adamant (laughs) that we watched and included in this episode. The title is a reference to a film from 1981 called The Howling. And the plot is a nod to the 1977 film, The Car. Tell us your thoughts on The Honking. It's a a classic Futurama episode where Bender inherits a castle after his... uh, his uncle, uncle uncle robot dies. Yeah. While he's at the castle, uh, he gets run over by a wear car. 
<laughs> and so obviously he becomes a wear car, mm-hmm. which leads to all sorts of misadventures. And, you know, just at night he would turn into a car <laughs> and run people over. And they add the interesting mythos, uh, because again, they're pulling this right from the howling of, you know, where you have to, the only way to break the curse is to kill the werewolf that bit you, but you have to keep tracking it down, you Mm -hmm. know, because like in in Futurama, they they track down the guy that ran Bender over and he's like, oh yeah, but I'm not the original. And then they go to the next one. And then the next one, you just keep meeting all these different wear cars. <laughs> uh, and it's, I mean, obviously Futurama is fantastic. It's a lot of fun. But like this, we almost shouldn't include it, but we we did anyways. because Because I wanted to draw the firm line in no murderous AIs. Sure. And Bender is already a robot. Yeah. But he turns into... But he's murderous when he's a car. He is. He's very murderous when he's a car. He's only slightly murderous when he's a robot. Yeah. I thought it was super fun. I actually haven't seen too much of Futurama and it was enough to make me be like, maybe I should watch through this show. The entire series is fantastic. Yeah. Currently on streaming. So definitely check it out. And okay. I want to... What'd you think of the ending? I fell asleep. You know that I did. (laughs) I want to conclude this episode, Alan, Mm -hmm. with you telling me out of the films that we watched for this episode, which was your favorite? Do you really have to ask? Well, rank them in order for me. Uh, leagues and bounds. Starting with least fave. Starting with least favorite. Yeah. The car. Yep. Fuck you. But yeah, I, I don't know. I really liked Maximum Overdrive. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to go. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not putting the Futurama episode in there. No, that just Because it's its own thing. Uh, it goes the car, then rubber, then Maximum Overdrive, and then... You take the elevator all the way up to the top uh-huh. and then you get to see Christine. My list is different. Starting is at the bottom, the car, obviously. Yep. Then maximum overdrive. Okay. Rubber and Christine. Okay. So you swap the two that I was like, well, they're pretty close. Yeah. I swapped them. Okay. I have my own woman. So that those are kind of the watch list. I would say the top three for us are the ones we would recommend that you watch. No, just watch just watch Christine if you are. Sure. But I mean, if you want to dive into it, dive into it. Sure. You know, welcome. I mean, yeah, and Maximum Overdrive is pretty fun. Yeah. We're going to be back next week again with a Lunatics Library episode with killer car stories, which we're super excited about. And yeah, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Until then, drive safe. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content, consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron-exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club. Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel. You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok, and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.